Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. All right, crew. Did you know that you can use code PUREDOGTALK at EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders to receive $20 off? <laughs> I'm saving you 20 bucks, guys, off each Embark for Breeder kit you buy. Embark for Breeders dog DNA kits bring you the genetic results you need to create a best-in-show breeding program. Identify your puppy's genetic profiles before they go to their new homes, like I did, and give new owners peace of mind and useful genetic health information. Embark, creator of the highest-rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available and easy-to-download OFA submission reports for breeders. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. And don't forget this part. Use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders. And remember to use the code PUREDOGTALK. They're world-class scientists and veterinary geneticists are standing by. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm super excited tonight. Kaylee Paler, who is one of our Pure Dog Talk patrons, she is a dog trainer she is a dog breeder here in a few minutes when her dog has puppies. She's a dog enthusiast who's put more than 50 titles on Azawak. So I'm saying this is some mad skill. And we're, we are going to talk about dog trainers and dog breeders and where they meet kind of in the middle and this could be an interesting conversation because Kaylee and I have decided we're going to address the sort of the elephant in the room. And we're going to talk about the situation with dog trainers where there is some thought that many of the processes, and Kaylee, get me if I'm wrong on this, many of the processes, many of the thought processes about dog training have such a foundation in sort of an animal rights agenda sort of mindset. Would that be accurate? It would to an extent for sure. It's one of those issues where you don't even realize that that type of agenda is sneaking in because the difference, the line between animal welfare and animal rights activists is a tough one. Mm -hmm. And people who love their dogs and want the best for their dogs and trainers who want the best for dogs, it's really easy to lose track of what is actually best for them in the long term. And are we going to let them suffer with mental issues when we could just clarify the issue immediately with a consequence that is appropriate? Right. And I think consequence that's appropriate is a super important term. And I think losing track of the line. 
I think that's a really important term too. And so I really want to just kind of tackle that head on. I started way back in the day. I'm old. You know, everybody had a chain slip collar and that's how you trained your dogs. And it is a phenomenal tool. I still recommend it today. Used properly, it is one of the greatest dog training tools that you can come across. Used inappropriately, it's bad. Mm-hmm. But that's not the tool's fault. This is just an example. And now we are to the point where if you put anything but a harness on your dog, you're an animal abuser. And I'm really struggling with this. So walk me through it. So what I tend to see and what I ran into is, again, really well-intentioned individuals who get a rescue as their first dog. Mine was Little Lurcher. Lots of health problems as is unfortunately common. And I didn't know that going into it. Epilepsy, dental issues, that type of thing. And some behavioral issues that come with certainly genetic temperament issues, but also just they didn't have a breeder that cared about the puppy that gave them the solid foundation. My first dog didn't know how to be handled. He didn't know how to do stairs. And so you get into dog training because you want to make a difference. And you want to see those dogs thrive and blossom. And certainly I became a trainer because my rescue Saluki was extremely attractive to people and dogs. Now, this is a dog that is very close to finishing his field championship, and I couldn't have him around dogs at a work racing trial when I first got him. And so I dug into the behavioral issues. And what I started to see when I went through my apprenticeship, and the owner of the business where I apprenticed was roughly your generation Doberman, fancier exhibitor, did competition obedience, showed her dogs. They'd had a lab breeder on staff, again, showed her dogs. My direct mentor had a lovely lab, had done rally, had done obedience with her. And so I saw all of these incredible women who had these purebred dogs that were predictable, that you could understand exactly what was going to happen. And so I started to understand oh, okay, you understand exactly what you're going to get when you get that dog. And I was lucky. And I wasn't the only one. All of my colleagues that came in at the same time as I did all came from a rescue background. And that's not a bad thing. People want to make a difference. Right. And one of the things that will stay with me until I die that a client said to me was, it is my privilege to rescue you. It is something that I have a privilege to rescue and bring this dog along and to help them see better about the world. And that's fantastic. And that client was a wonderful person and worked really hard with her dog. But with my own dogs, I'm in purebred dogs because I don't have time to go home and work with behavioral issues when I get home. It's just something I spend all day doing. And so I can't, for my mental health, pursue that. Right. And that's the balance is understanding that different people have different needs. And so rescue is not a bad thing. Absolutely not. It's a great thing. But all of my colleagues went that way. Right. Where we started with rescues and ended up with your red dogs. Right. Because if you rescue dogs, you have to understand you're not getting anything predictable. You don't know the background. 
And it has always been the beauty of purebred dogs. You know how the dog was raised. You know how the dog was bred. You know what health tests were done. You know what the health risks are. And you can make those decisions based on actual facts instead of a heart tug of melting eyes at the animal shelter. And those dogs deserve a home too. I do not take away from that ever, but understand what you're getting and know what the package deal is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how do you see breeders, dog breeders, dog people, people in the purebred dog fancy and dog trainers such as yourself, where do you find them meeting in the middle the best? What's the best way to move forward? I know as a breeder myself, there are any number of dog trainers that I am never going to ask to take on a German wire-haired pointer with issues because they don't have the faintest, foggiest notion what they're doing with a dog of that particular mindset. So it's a very complicated question, which is why we're addressing it today. Exactly. A lot of the problem from a training perspective is that we don't see, in many cases, the well-bred dogs because they take the puppy home and it's already leash trained and has some crate training and has some basics. Maybe it knows some clicker. And so, you know, we see it for a puppy class and then never again. There was a post that went across my feed today of a trainer who had only worked with little lap dog, reactive, fear biting. That was her impression of the breed. And I was like, no, no, I've worked with breeders of that breed. I've seen those puppies. They can be very confident outgoing little dogs, but I was very lucky and I still am that I work in an area where we get the farm dogs that come in and we get the suburban poodles and doodles Mm -hmm. and labs and goldens. And we are in Seattle. And so, you know, we're near the coast. We get some imports. We get rare breeds. We have a great rare breed community. Well, and you have a really heavy breeder community in your area as well. Yes. And that is, I think, the number one thing that trainers need to see is well-bred dogs. Mm. And we've done a couple interviews where I was just a little bit sad because the breeders were like, they don't need training. That's just going to wreck their enthusiasm about life. You don't need to break them down and put them in a box. And that's not what training should be. And that is to an extent what it used to be, but training really should be about building your bond Mm -hmm. and helping understand and speak each other's language. And you shouldn't be forcing a four-month-old puppy into a perfect heel for seven blocks. That's not something that's realistic. And there are trainers that are absolutely going to try to make that happen. But I do, from a breeder perspective, wish that breeders had a little bit more trust in trainers and that it's just a breakdown in communication. Neither of them see all the good that the other one can do right? because of the bad in both communities, Mm -hmm. because of badly bred dogs. We run into that all the time, Kaylee, in every part of our life. Like there's great rescue people. There's terrible rescue people. If all you've ever met is terrible rescue people, you think rescue people are Satan. The same with breeders. So, I mean, this is part and parcel of a similar conversation that we have consistently over and over and over again, communication, meeting people where they are, understanding different perspectives, understanding that no two dogs are the same, No two training methods are going to work on two members of the same breed. 
Never mind two members of the same litter. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just about getting those well-bred dogs in front of trainers. Even if you know what you're doing, even if you think you know what you're doing, taking them to a puppy group class or puppy play. And even if you know what you're doing, I take my puppies to other people's group classes. Sure, shows have lots of different stimulus. There's lots of different dogs and people around, but there's nothing like that focus and getting the feedback and having dogs that maybe are losing it near your puppy and helping your puppy be able to focus through that, that even if you know what you're doing, trainers still have value. And I think that's some of the issue is I run into lots of potential buyers from me who are Mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't need that. I'm going to train my puppy alone. And I'm like, I will help you through that. I will give you advice, but I really want you to have a trainer before this puppy goes home. That's something that I want them to have in place so that when something goes differently, because it obviously will at some point, the best laid plans going to happen. You don't expect you have not only your breeder on standby, but also your trainer. Okay. So working with a trainer, making sure that trainers get to see well-bred dogs, I think is important. Now, how about trainers working with breeders and understanding differences that exist from one breed to another. That the training program that I would devise for my four pound Chihuahua is going to be different than the training program I'm going to devise for my 80 pound wire hair pointer, just simply on size, never mind on mind and temperament and all the rest of it. Oh, certainly doing rally with my Newfoundland clients, very different than doing it with Miles Walk. And this is something that really they have to take on differently. They have to do differently than what many people already are. And we're busy. Definitely attend those seminars. Continued education is so important. But as part of that, maybe look into not just book learning, but go take their personal dog and put a rally title on it. Because if you go to a rally trail, you're going to see what purebred dogs really are. Mm-hmm. You're going to be disillusioned from all of those mistaken ideas that you had about them. Right. It's really hard to trial and be part of the purebred dog world and maintain those prejudices. Oh, all breeders are evil because, you know, here's this cute little have not knees puppy that the exhibitor next to you has and now they're rolling in your lap and isn't that cute and oh look they're so outgoing and there's 700 people around you right and i do think that too often i mean we have certainly good trainers that are active within the american kennel club within ukc within any of the various event structures but an awful lot of them as you've mentioned come from that sort of rescue background And I think that's really, really valid. But I also want the trainers to not just meet well-bred dogs, but to appreciate that there is more than one, you can never say no to your dog training method. So it's funny because on both sides of the issue, let's just say R plus or force-free versus a balanced perspective, you're going to get people who understand dogs and their different needs and their different drives. And you're going to get people who don't. Mm -hmm. One of my very favorite trainers, Leslie McDevitt, is one of my inspirations for making sure that dogs get breed appropriate training. And she's a force-free trainer, Mm -hmm. but she 
understands that not every dog can be rewarded in the same way. My dogs don't work for food. They don't work for toys. They want to be out there with me doing things. And that is the reward. And that is something that no one believes me about because that's weird. No, that's totally normal. (laughs) (laughs) Makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) Right now, you have wire pairs who want to do the work. But it's understanding that if I slow down and start shoving food in their face, they look at me like, why? Why are you doing this? And that doesn't have anything to do with corrections. That is entirely rewarding in a way that the dog understands. And then you run into the same thing from a balanced perspective, which is finding consequences that the dog views as consequences. because. You can say, oops, and if that isn't a consequence, it doesn't matter if you tell your dog no. Right. And so no is not this magical word unless it's conditioned to mean, no, you did the wrong thing, make a different choice. So with consequences, I think it's really easy to not understand, not realize when you're applying them and not meaning to. And so I've worked with plenty of dogs that were afraid of their harness. And from a human perspective, but it's a harness. It shouldn't be aversive. And it deeply is. Put them on a prong collar and they're like, oh, okay, this is fine. I understand this. And that's dogs' brains working differently. They don't like to be confined, but the pressure of a prong doesn't shut them down like a harness does. And I've seen that repeatedly. Is it always the case? No. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion knows you've got a lot on your plate this holiday season, and it's not just cookies. <laughs> With their industry-leading coverage, you can focus on what matters most, the health of your pet. Trupanion even takes the stress and confusion out of going to the vet with their ability to provide payment directly to participating veterinarians. Imagine no longer having to pay upfront costs out of pocket or worry about submitting paper claims. As a breeder, you can also enroll in Trupanion's free breeder support program to get access to a special coverage offer for your litters, materials for your puppy packs, and a ton of other benefits. To learn more and sign up for the breeder support program, just follow the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. We're going back to the concept that not every dog is the same. Not every method works with every dog. And there are very specific breed-related differences in the dogs you're working with, whether that dog is a rescue or a beautifully raised, beautifully bred, purebred dog. Either one of those things. They're still going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And You know, the saying that I will always go back to is it's not us that gets to decide what is rewarding or what is punishing. It's the dog. And if we aren't watching our dog to see what they like and what they don't, we're not very good trainers. That is actually beautiful. Listening to our dogs, listening to our dogs to me is so important because the dog will tell you. And what one dog tells me and what another dog tells me and how they tell me it answers how I'm going to then adjust what I'm doing so that I'm able to communicate to them. Well, and it goes back to 
it's very common for owners that I work with to try to do everything exactly correct and not watch their dog. I remember in my apprenticeship having this, I have no idea what my dog did. I know I'd hit the right check boxes, but my mentor wasn't happy with that. Oh, I didn't watch the dog. Mm-hmm. And that's such a simple idea, but finding something that works for the dog and then finding something that works for the human, for the handler. Because the fact is, a lot of times you can make great progress with behavior modification with just our positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And you can make huge strides. And sometimes, especially depending on how ingrained that habit is, it will take you months or years. It sure did with my Saluki. This is something we were talking about off air before we started. And I think this is so important to hear. How many people out there in the regular dog world, in just the dog owning public, are going to spend years trying to get their dog to not do something by purely using the R plus methods, which are fabulous, which do great things until the owner isn't going to do the work. And then the behavior isn't going to change because the work is onerous. And you can very easily cement the wrong result as well, if your timing isn't good. And that's true of all training, but it's especially true of behavior modification. I get so many clients who come to me and like, you know, it was Thanksgiving. We had 20 people over because we hadn't seen anyone since COVID and we just didn't get a chance to do the training and they're all sheepish and shaming them doesn't make them do the work. It just doesn't. So you as a trainer have to step back and evaluate, okay, here's a training plan that would have worked for the dog, but the humans can't implement it. So let's try a different method that maybe is not as ideal but at least it's going to happen. And at least we're going to see some type of progress because the owners can manage it. And in the long run, what is best for the dog? Stay in the family because the behavior is corrected or wind up in a shelter or rescue or worse, bounced. I mean, they talk all the time. We're just, I was looking at numbers the other day, the number of dogs bounced from shelter to shelter. Every dog in a shelter, the average is that they're in the shelter three separate times. Mm-hmm. And the piece that almost never gets brought up as part of the conversation is when a dog has a behavioral problem and you're working on behavior modification and only doing positive reinforcement, how much chronic stress does the dog stay under while dealing with that behavioral problem? Because the fact is you can manage things when you can't train, but that management is always going to break down. And so you're dealing with this chronic stress on the dog. The dog is living in this anxious state versus acute stress of, let's say, a slip collar correction. Right. Of no, stop that. Right. And any training that you do has to have the good and the bad. You need that cold and the hot of both things. And so once the dog stops, you better be praising and following up with food and getting distance. It's not just no, you were wrong, but no, you were wrong. Yes. Yes. This is right. Yes, exactly. And that is, I'm sure a huge part of the dogs I work with mostly, but that has been incredibly successful for me. And I'm not going to advocate for anybody else's training behavior on my own, but I do believe that there's a lot of value to being able to see the value in that system. So, okay. Top three tips 
for finding a trainer as you're a breeder. So you're a breeder, either you want to find a trainer to work with your own dog, or you want to help your puppy buyers find a trainer to work with their new puppies or whatever. What are your go-tos? What are your things you're looking for, for either the breeder or the recommendation for the buyer? Audit classes. Mm. Always, always, always just audit a class. With COVID, it has been trickier with class caps and things, but under normal circumstances, any trainer worth their salt is going to welcome you into a class and be like, yes, please watch my classes, see what I'm about. Because the fact is, even for me, not every trainer is a fit. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking for an agility instructor, I think I audited probably five or six classes because I just wanted a trainer that would work with an off-breed, that would understand what an off-breed did and wouldn't force them into a specific box. So that's really my first one is you can't know until you see it. And that is a way where you don't have to drop 150 to $300 on a class and then decide that you really don't like it and it's non-refundable. And now you're out all that money because it wasn't a good fit. And then similarly, talk to the trainer. If you can't go audit, my second thought would be talk to the trainer because honestly, philosophy statements, looking at what they've accomplished, that's all good, but it doesn't always mean what you think it does. Where you got a CD on a lab, but are you going to be able to get a CD on my Husky? Right. And ask questions like, what breeds have you worked with? Because there's lots of trainers in areas where you know we get the pit mix and the golden mix and some doodles and laps. And maybe a German Shepherd. And that's it. And that's just the demographic of their area. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have a wire hair. Wire hair. None of that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. And so just understanding what you're going into. And that doesn't necessarily mean if they're the only trainer in your area, I may still go to class, but I'm going to go in with my eyes wide open and take everything with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And if they're having trouble with something with my dog, I'm going to go back to my breeder and be like, mm-hmm. hey, how would you go about teaching this? Because at least the breeder is going to have resources for you. Right. And I think that's super important. Talk to your breeder. Always talk to your breeder. Get advice from your breeder. Training advice from your breeder because they're going to know the breed. They're going to know the family of dogs, hopefully. Even if it's their very first litter, they've got somebody advising them, we hope. So that's, I think, always super, super, super important. And I also think it's important to talk about, particularly not so much necessarily maybe for the actual breeders, but for the buyers, finding a trainer that will train the owner. The dog is often not the problem. (laughs) It rarely is the dog. Almost never the problem. In all of my years, 40 some odd years involved with dogs at some level or another, it's almost never the dog. (laughs) Just say it. So I think that is such an important aspect. And how do trainers think about that? How do they interact with their clients about that? So I'm glad you brought this up because I have a story from when it was my very first time sitting in on a consultation with my mentor. And it was a little Yorkie behavioral problems, as you'd expect. And my mentor stopped and was like, what did your breeder have to say about this? And I just, light bulbs went off in my head where I was like, oh, 
And, you know, she went through a series of questions. What's in her lines? Was this common at a similar age? And I suddenly understood that those people had a lot more background on the dog that was in front of us, where I'd only seen the dog for 10 minutes and the breeders had all of this wealth of information. And unfortunately, no matter how much breeders stress, come talk to us if there's an issue. Come talk to us. Most owners are going to forget in the moment. They just, they're going to panic. Right. They're not going to come talk to you. And so that's not the whole solution. Go talk to your breeder is not the whole solution, but it's going to give a good trainer way more of the puzzle. And it's part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And I think talking to the owner about, okay, so here's the thing. You have this dog and it has this particular behavioral issue. And so tell me about your day and how you interact with the dog. And the dog is nervous and unsure. Have you told it it's okay to jump up and then yelled at it when it jumped up 30 seconds later? So that imbalance and that what I call unfair, (laughs) inconsistent and unfair, like it's always the same, no matter what, it's always the same. If it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. And you have to decide early because I did Or you have to train a cue that you can jump up on me and every other time it's a default off. Right. However you do that, it still needs to be consistent. And I think that is one of the things that I see when I interact with my clients that would come to me with their dogs that were dragging them around or whatever when I was handling. And they're like, I don't know if you're going to be able to finish it. This dog won't quit yanking me around. And then 30 seconds later, the dog was healing fine. I'm like, yeah, it's not the dog. (laughs) (laughs) what we call operator error, honey. Yes. And it is. My mentor's big motto was as a dog training facility that we were a people business first and a dog business second. And I didn't understand that for the first couple of years I worked that. And by the time I left that facility, I'm living it. Yeah. You have to understand dogs. And you see that across the fancy. You have to understand people to understand your dogs. Yeah. And you know, judges don't understand people. Mm-mm. Readers don't understand people. And that's if you can't talk to the people, the dogs are going to suffer. And I think that that is a huge, huge piece, whether you're the breeder or the trainer or who you are, the owner, that communication piece. If we could only learn to talk to our dogs and actually talk to the people, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's so difficult. Oh. But it is because how many of us, let's think about this, Kaylee, come on, let's be real. And I've said this on the show before, you know it for a fact. How many of us became dog professionals because we like dogs, not people? (laughs) And I think I am coming at it from, I was a stage manager in theater. Mm. I managed companies of 45 plus pretty Mm -hmm. regularly for a decade before coming to dogs. And so I really did have to learn how to understand people. And then we layered the dogs in. And I think that's actually the easier way to go about it. I think so too. I honestly do. It's not the common way, but it is definitely definitely not the common way. Meet how many professional handlers can I introduce you to that are just like, they can't. Nope, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) I like dogs. That would be me. Oh my gosh. Well, Kaylee, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you tackling the elephant in the room and always, 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 always advocating for the dog because that's what really matters. Yes, it's for us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. 
Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. One of my favorite events over the last year or so has been the virtual After Dark for patrons of the podcast. Anybody can join this amazing community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking the Become a Patron link on the homepage. While you're there zooming around on the site, you can check out our shopping tab too. There's even a Pure Dog Talk swag link. Who knew? Share the love with all our cool gear. Check it all out at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.